0: Welcome to We Are I.R., a new podcast about international relations, geopolitics and societies around the globe. With me, Robert Ballante. On the show, I talk to young and not-so-young professionals from world-class universities. We discuss their areas of expertise in order to bring fresh perspectives on the most topical issues of the world. (music) Today I'm delighted to be joined by Maurice Gayan, who graduated from Leiden University and afterwards worked for the UN in Sudan. Maurice has been focusing on a crucial matter for the African continent, the dispute between Egypt, Ethiopia and Sudan over the waters of the world's longest river, something that came to be known as the Nile Crisis. But before we start digging into this underexplored matter, can you please tell us a little bit more about your background and how did you become interested in this issue?
1: Um, Well, I uh, used to study international relations with a focus on the Middle East. And because of this, I was uh, living for some time in Egypt. And I was very interested in Egypt's um, relations with its neighbors, particularly with Sudan, um, as they share the Nile. And um, after my undergrad, um, I spent some time in Sudan as well and um in the end i, uh, I focused uh, some research on um, on the issue of uh, how this, this this nile crisis impacted in the light of chinese investment um uh, in the in, in the dam construction of this region and um, now at uh, now at beijing university i'm also researching uh, this issue of chinese impact in the um, on the nile in the nile basin region and also in the in the wider middle east fantastic so let's get into it Nile's Basin covers
0: 11 countries, from Tanzania all the way to Egypt. Historically, however, because of its economic and military predominance, Egypt has exercised a de facto hegemonic role over the river's legal regime. Practically, from a legal standpoint, how did this come to be?
1: Well, we have to see that there have been some Nile-Water agreements drafted uh, precisely in 1929 and in 1959, but both of them have to be regarded as being uh, not fully inclusive of all the countries in the Nile River Basin. So in 1929, when um, Egypt uh, was still under, under British colonial rule, there was an agreement between Egypt and Great Britain over the use of the, of, of the Nile water. Um, and they granted, based on um, historic rights, they granted Egypt um, 90% of the water, whereas the other, the other countries were either under, under British rule or uh, being elected as independent Ethiopia was at this time. Um, and then in the, in the 1950s, there was a, a renegotiation um, under Nasser in the in the light of building um, of building the Aswan Dam in Egypt and this agreement was uh, between between Egypt and Sudan which just was independent for a couple of years and in this agreement 75 percent of the um, of the Nile water was uh, was was awarded to Egypt and 25 percent to Sudan yet other countries for example especially Ethiopia or also the the other countries in the upper Nile region uh, like uh, Uganda and Rwanda Burundi they were um, completely left out of this agreement and since um, since this time, there's always been this contentious issue over who, the, who, who, can, who can legally have access to the waters. Um, whereas uh, Egypt says that um, we need it most because we are in the desert and the Nile is our only source of water. Um, other countries, like especially Ethiopia is the biggest of the upstream countries, really want to make use of the water and, um, in, in terms of irrigation potential, in terms of hydropower. In recent
0: years, Egypt's hegemonic role began to be challenged. For example, Ethiopia the country where 85 of the water that runs through the Egyptian section of the Nile originates, launched the construction of Africa's largest hydro dam, the Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam. The dam is projected to generate 6,000 megawatts of power, to primarily satisfy the electricity needs of Ethiopia, and secondarily exports the surplus to neighboring countries, both to increase the foreign currency reserves, and build a stable relation with neighbors. This being said, What do you think could be the impact of this dam on the downstream countries of Sudan and Egypt?
1: Well, both countries very much depend on the waters of the Nile, um, as they're both in a lie in a desert climate and um, have almost no other um, source of water. Especially this is the case for, for Egypt where 90% of the water supply comes exclusively from the Nile and also 95% of the population live base, live on the banks of the Nile. So it's really um, the only source of um, irrigation. And um, as uh, the Egyptian population is set to grow uh, exponentially in the, in the coming years, um, it will be, um, even without the issues in Ethiopia, there will be water scarcity in Egypt so especially Cairo is uh, very afraid that, uh, that this these dam constructions um, uh, in the on the upper Nile in Ethiopia will manipulate will manipulate the water flow will um, draw water away from uh, their source will reduce also the um, the filling of the aswan um, of the Aswan dam. So that uh, less um, energy can be generated uh, through the, the own dam. So the impact, especially for Egypt, is, is very much um, at stake. It's, uh, it has been framed as a national security issues. There have been, um, especially in, in recent years, in the, around the revolution, uh, in the, in the Union revolution, um, several uh, threats by Egyptian politicians to um, inter, intervene militarily. Um, I think in 2012, it was um, the then President Morsi who, who threatened to, uh, to bomb the dam if it built.
0: In November 2017, the latest round of negotiation between Egypt, Sudan and Ethiopia fell apart. Given the regional geography, and as you said, being Egypt a downstream state, it has little leverage over Ethiopia, and is likely to have to come back to the negotiating table when Addis Ababa completes the construction of the dam, likely in 2018. For example, there is going to be the need to coordinate the filling of this renaissance dam with the waters held in the Aswan Dam in Egypt, as you earlier said. So, in your view, what are the prospects of future constructive multilateral cooperation?
1: Um, Well, honestly speaking, I think Egypt has not much of a choice in this issue other than cooperate with Ethiopia. Um, Because, as the Egyptians had to very painfully realize, water flows down. And for a long time, the Egyptians thought that uh, just because they are the civilization of the Nile, um, that the Nile belongs to them, and um, they can they can use it forever for whatever they want. But um, in recent years, there's been a shift in uh, geopolitical um, realities, and uh, so Egypt will have to uh, adapt to this, and will probably come back to the negotiation table. We saw that in 2015, Egypt and Sudan, Egypt, Sudan and Ethiopia launched this uh, Declaration of Principles uh, talks for the first time. Time to um, to be more to, to have some common space to uh, to discuss the, to discuss the issue of the nine, which was also unprecedented. Many people wouldn't have thought that this would uh, that this would have actually um, come to terms, especially after the after the very threatening rhetoric in the, around 2012-2013. But I would say that Egypt is, um, has no other choice than negotiate um, and achieve uh, to 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 this uh, negotiation but, uh, more uh, more favorable terms in this uh, in this regard.
0: Alright, so let's switch gears a little bit and focus on something that you have researched also about and it's the impact of external actors in the region, namely China. What can you tell us about Beijing's involvement in the construction of dams along the Nile, also taking into account Beijing's broader involvement in Africa?
1: Well. The appearance of Beijing um, of China in the in the region as a as a, as a financier and contractor of large um, of large hydro hydro infrastructure has very much shaken the whole inter uh, interregional um, geopolitical structure. Uh, for a long time, it was Egypt that dominated all the um, the whole region because it was just simply the most um, the most economic prosperous, the most military, the strongest militarily, and also politically the best connected region, uh, be- be- best uh, best connected country in the region. Um, yet since the 1990s We we see with the stabilization of of the political situation in Ethiopia um, after the end of the civil war, and with Chinese investment coming in, um, we see very much this emergence of, of... yeah, what so many people call new donors um, in terms of uh, hydro infrastructure, or new finances—not um, just Chinese, also many Arab um, Arab uh, Arab uh, dam constructors, not dam constructors, but finances—give uh, a lot of money for these uh, for these dams. And this has very much shifted because now um, countries in the on the Upper Nile are equipped with all these uh, with the finance uh, with the financial resources and with the techn- technological capabilities to construct the dams. And, um, they now have a leverage. You don't need to, they don't need to appeal to the, to the World Bank, to the IMF for funds, which would not be granted because, um, Egypt, uh, could always, um, uh, could always interfere with, uh, with, with giving, with giving funds to this. Whereas with China, we see this disregard for, um, for these, for these, for these established, um, guidelines, so this colonial, uh, these colonial, colonial agreements which were reached, um, and, um, the sheer, the sheer, um, power of, uh, um, the sheer financial resources and capa- uh, technological, te- technological capabilities that are coming in are very much altering this, and so um, I see that uh, the whole issue of, uh, of dams in the Nile very much reflects um, the impact that China has on Africa or chinese investment has uh, has abroad, just um, based on its scale
0: So do you think are there any alternatives to hydroelectric energy? Can Ethiopia meet its growing energy needs in any other way
1: well. Of course, there are plans to uh, produce uh, solar, wind energy um, in the region, and also there was China, Chinese investment in, uh, in Ethiopia in, uh, in, in, some, in so, uh, to some extent into this. But given the fact that um, the Great uh, Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Time is almost completed, and that uh, Ethiopia doesn't face uh, many obstacles from from Egypt, who is um, powerless in this regard almost. I don't think this will have a big impact. And um, dams constitute too much of a of a prestigious of a national um, national prestigious image. Um, this construction of big dams for um, for a country like Ethiopia is a very much a big thing, especially because um, it, um, it it shows uh, it, it acts as a symbol of state power and um with the, with the foreign investments coming in with all this backing with the um with local elites um very much involved in uh, in the building of dams um i doubt that uh, that something uh, that some that some alternative energy source will will emerge uh, which is maybe less politically um sensitive or less um, has less um, reverberations on the political landscape uh, also uh, ethiopia has uh, 80 million uh, people roughly which have no access to uh, to electricity um, so, the uh, efficiency of hydroelectricity is just much bigger than, than of solar or wind energy. Maurice, thank you very much for coming on the show. Thank you very much, for.